open up this passage, this Father's Day, focusing on the Father heart of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, for this, your holy word, uh, given to us through your mouthpiece, Hosea. Father, as we dwell upon it, we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit who prepares our hearts and minds and causes us to understand these things. This morning, we ask that you would free us from every distraction, that we may focus to listen and that our hearts and minds may hear your word. And more than that, Father, may we be stirred to change if that be your will for us. We ask these things in the precious name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Friends, I don't think any of you would agree with the notion that being a parent is hard. No matter what the child's age, the delicate dance we do in order to nurture and to teach, to guide, discipline and disciple our children is one of the greatest challenges of any human being can face. Being a parent is hard. As parents watch their children grow, they hold their breath We're constantly asking ourselves, is he or she okay? Are they happy? And as the children grow older, and I absolutely can testify to this, the stakes get higher even still. Will they make the right life decisions? Will they be safe? Did I teach them well enough? Sometimes doubt creeps in. Being a parent can be oh so heartwarming, but at the same time, oh so heartbreaking. A reminder then, before we look at this passage, as we look at God through the eyes of Hosea and pray that our image of God might be deepened and strengthened, that God is called our Father. And this makes sense to us, doesn't it? We believe that God created us, we believe that God loves us and that God wishes to nurture us and to teach, guide, disciple us. God is our parent. And our Father wants the very best for us. The very best for us. It also stands to reason then at times we test God's patience. We're going to see this quite vividly um, as we look at um, the Israelites, but we too need to acknowledge that we test God's patience in that area as our parent, for we are human. So, some context. Um, Remembering, um, as we've been looking at, that Israel in the 8th century before Jesus um, came were at an absolute crossroads. Uh, To continue with our metaphor, it was something like a, a recalcitrant or rebellious teenager. Uh, That child that sort of gone the wrong way. The northern and the southern kingdoms had split. Israel was the northern kingdom and Judah, of course, the southern kingdom. It was a time of political unrest. Perhaps that might have been adding to um, the frustrations and um, some of the behaviour of the Israelites as they went looking for the wrong areas to receive their comfort. It was a time of political unrest and intrigue. Most of the monarchs um, who took the throne in this period were assassinated or died quite violently. That's because they weren't very good people and they led their people astray. The great powers of Egypt and Assyria threatened to destabilise this tiny country. 
And the people were not turning to God or to God's prophets for their solutions. All of their problems. In fact, as we've studied very closely over the last few months, God's people were experimenting, weren't they? They were at that stage of their life where they started looking at other things for comfort. Looking to other gods and rituals, their idols, spent a fair bit of time looking at those. The prophet Hosea spends much time in his many prophecies trying to persuade the people of Israel to reform their ways and cast their eyes on God, their loving father. For much of his writing, Hosea uses another metaphor, the metaphor of marriage, uh, to talk about the relationship between God and his people. But here in chapter 11, our study today, Hosea uses the language of the love of a parent for their children. Here again, God's words through Hosea. I'm just going to read for you again verse 1 and verse 4. Verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Very personal. Verse 4. I led them with the cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek and I bent down to feed them. Again, very personal. When Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. This section is uh, presented like a memory, like somebody flipping through um, a photo album and recalling um, past times, you might say. A parent recalling the ways in which they cared for their child from the very earliest of days. That's a very little hand. The name Ephraim is used in this section, not the phrase my children. So it's very personal. Ephraim was the name of a particular tribe. Very specifically the word Ephraim, the name is used. The parent loves the child, calls the child. The parent picks the child up in his arms and leads the child gently. Not with shackles or chains like a prisoner or a slave, but with the bands of love and human kindness. Very human image here. The parent lifts the child tenderly, holds her to her cheek, to his cheek. The parent bends down to the child, gets down to the child's level, feeds the child. Everything here is a hallmark of what we would call good, consistent, and a loving relationship between parent and child. Genuine closeness like, like nothing else. Quite clearly this picture shows how God loves his people. As his children whom he loves. This was a picture of the past. You might call this the first part of this story. Abruptly, though, the content of this passage changes. That's section one, or scene one. To scene two, the next part speaks of the current situation. What happens in this, this loving parent-child relationship? Verses five to seven. They will not return to Egypt and will not Assyria rule over them because they refuse to repent. Refuse to repent. I didn't go back and count this, but I reckon if I did, up to about chapter 11, 
Hosea records that the children of Israel refused to repent probably up to 30, 40 or 50 times. Now saying, God, no thanks. I'm going my own way. I've got a better idea. A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. The sword rages. Violence is devouring the cities and despite all of this, they will not return to God. And so the people, God's children, will go back to Egypt, back into slavery or fall into the hands of Assyria. The parent here, God, is not speaking of punishment but of a natural consequence for their actions. It's interesting. Because the people will not return to God, this will be the outcome of their choice. Can you hear parent language here? Anyone as a parent ever use these words? I'm not punishing you, um, but if you choose to do this, X, Y will result. (laughs) Action consequence, a natural outworking of one's consequences, uh, one's behaviour. Some might call this the tough love stance. And it sounds to me in this part of the passage that God is signed on for this tough love position as well. That's where he's at now. But then, maybe scene three, if you like, the picture changes again. Something perhaps unpredictable occurs. Something that sounds very much like a cry of agony from the loving father. Follow with me verses eight and nine. This is like a story that's unfolding. How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, Israel? How can I do it? How can I treat you like Adama? How can I make you like Zeboim? My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. Two words stick out to me here straight away. Almost like the central part of this story. And interestingly, they're right in the middle. Heart and compassion. A right understanding of these two words will lead us, I hope, to a deeper sense of God's heart here. God can't do it. God can't bear the thought of God's children being destroyed like Adamar and Zeboim. And cities that met their downfall along with Sodom and Gomorrah. God says, my heart won't let me do it. (laughs) My compassion won't let me do it. A word about these two words, heart and compassion. I learnt this week that in in English we've turned the word heart into a sort of um, Valentine's Day understanding. A bit of a feeling slash mushy kind of love understanding of heart. In the Hebrew, uh, the word translated heart contains layers and layers of meaning, including um, a deeper understanding of the inner person including the will and the intellect. We seem to disconnect that in our thought. We think it's all about feeling. There's no separation between the intellect and the will in Hebrew thought. So we're getting closer to what is is the actual will 
and determination of God here. Not his feelings, because surely if he was acting out of feelings, he would just smite them and cast them off. He was angry at them, very angry. They were sinning. But he's acting here out of his determination and his will. And that's the heart of God. To the word compassion, that has a different root meaning than what we might consider in English as well. This is important. In English, compassion stems from the idea of suffering with somebody. It's almost like we can pick up on, pick up on their feelings and have compassion for somebody. In Hebrew, though, compassion stems from the word that means womb. Interesting. He's talking about his people like children. In fact, it's the plural of that word. The Hebrew idea of compassion means something like womb love. The love that exists between a parent and a child. Out of his love for his children, he's going to act in what's coming up. That's important. The compassion and the heart of God is an emotion that's springing from God's very, very design of how he set up his relationship with us as children, as his children. God's love and compassion are here going to win. God's going to remain just, but compassion will reign as he makes a way for them to get this right, to be in relationship with him, his people. Let's look at verses 10 and 11. Tells the story for us. You might call this section four of four in the unfolding story. Says this, they will follow the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children will come trembling from the west. They will come from Egypt trembling like sparrows, from Assyria fluttering like doves. I will settle them in their homes, declares the Lord. Oh, this is, this is the kicker for us. Why does he say that he will not again destroy Ephraim? Why does he say this? God has to punish Punish sin, surely. It's because the next person that he will destroy, rather than Ephraim, will be his only son. By giving him up to be brutally slaughtered and to take the wrath that Ephraim deserves. So it's still going to be acted upon. You see, God just can't pretend that he doesn't have burning anger and that sin can't be punished but he's not going to cast that on Ephraim Israel his son will come as a lamb now just to press the pause button here um, and just to stay truthful to the context of which this is embedded I want you to just go back if you have your Bible in front of me in front of you just flip back to Hosea 3 This should really give us confidence in the truth of this passage. Hosea 3, and we're just looking at verse number 1 and 2. I've got it on the screen as well if you forgot your Bible. Remember, this is, this is Hosea himself, and he's talking about his relationship with his wayward wife, um, Gomar. 
Then the Lord said to me, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. This, this may have been lost on us a little bit as we were going through those earlier passages, but really should kick home now when we make the link about Jesus. In other words, what's happening in this passage is God's saying to Hosea, go show love to your wife who is right now committing adultery. Go back there. Go find her, Hosea. Stick with me. Look what's after the comma. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. In other words, go back, pursue her relentlessly and bring her back. This verse also prophetically speaks of God's love for the whole world and has a lot to do with this lion that's going to come out of Judah. Recall what we read in verse 2. So I bought her for 15 shekels. Hosea had to go and buy his wife back. <laughs> A price had to be paid to redeem her. This is the love. Remembering she was already his. Okay, now flip back to the bigger picture. Isn't humankind the unique possession of the creator God? Doesn't God already own us and in relationship with us? Yet about 2,020 years ago, he paid a dear price. He paid for what he already possessed and he said his own son His blood was spilt to purchase back what he already owned. How much? What a picture of the gospel. God's paid a price for us and redeemed us back too. Friends, our Hosea has come. This is the lion that's going to roar in this passage. Salvation has come. God has loved you like he loved the children of Israel and has gone back to redeem you (laughs) and me. This passage foretells this. When he found us, we weren't neat and nice and put together. We were the furthest away from God that you could possibly be. Yet God's heart recoiled and turned over within him and he said, how much? How much? Instead of going back and buying back Goma with the shekels, the jingle of the nails is the same price. And God bought us back. Relentlessly pursued us. Relentlessly. Many commentators have said, and I agree with them, that these verses refer to Jesus' return and reign. 
that day will come for us. Friends, there are two short and very sweet applications for us when we consider the Father heart of God. When we reflect upon the deep mercy and compassion of God to redeem us as his children. Children who have strayed and chased their own idols, thought that we might go our own ways, yet God has pursued us relentlessly. Firstly, I want to ask you, do you need to reform your view of God to match that of Scripture? Are you relating to God as the great father and you the redeemed child, the one whom he actually loved right from the start? You see, I think we get this at head level in our consciousness, but don't always live that out in our life. God wants us to come to him as father with hands open and he wants to bless us as his children. I wonder how much blessing we might be missing out on because we're not necessarily relating with him in the same way. The way that we can call him father, of course, is to place our trust in his son. It would be remiss of me not to ask you, have you come to the father through the son? But presuming you have, there's a second point of application too. If that's how God wants us to relate with him as the great father, does that also shape the relationship that we have with our brothers and sisters? God's great heart is mercy and compassion and love and he will relentlessly go back for us. Are our relationships mirrored? Is that mirrored in our relationships with others? Life is hard. (laughs) This is not easy to do. I'm not professing that it's easy to do. I struggle with it. But we need to keep coming back to the heart of God. (laughs) Is that us? (laughs) Who do you need to show mercy to? (laughs) As this week's rolled on... um, Other thoughts have been placed on my heart in connection with this passage too. This is a special note to parents or fathers. Sometimes our kids go in directions that trouble us and it's hard being a parent. (laughs) I hope that there's some real encouragement in this about the disposition that we can take as parents towards our kids (laughs) and be determined to stand remembering here that God is not acting anywhere all through this passage there's no thought of God acting or doing anything he's just reminding them of who he is compassionate loving I wonder how much power there is in just standing showing love and compassion and mercy trusting the rest of God So, parent, (laughs) maintain that disposition of love and mercy. God will surely be faithful as we are faithful in that. And remember that the name of Jesus is far more powerful than anything that might separate. Far more powerful. God is 
Well, the name of Jesus is far more powerful than all of those things. The Father, heart of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love and your provision for us, the fact that we can call you Father. We thank you for Jesus, your way to make this possible. We thank you that as our loving parent, that even though we let you down and the natural disposition of our hearts and minds is to turn our back on you, like your people have passed, that you do pursue us relentlessly. You come for us. We confess that we don't always get this right. Pray that you would forgive us. As your children who desire to put you first, who want to call you Father and relate with you as our Father, we humbly ask that you would stir us and steer us by your word. We ask that you would help us to pray and discern our own individual tasks this week. Help us to see you more clearly and the grace that's been given to us. Help us to be reflectors of that grace and compassion and mercy to others. We ask these things in the precious name of your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.